Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. The episode you're about to listen to is an Ask Me Anything episode with audience questions. These come from a few posts I did on Twitter or Facebook. I got some questions that listeners want me to answer, and I'm going to take them on. Um, this is going to be a fairly casual episode with with the Ask Me Anythings, I try to just do them a little more off the cuff. I just get myself a list of questions, and I just go through them, more or less in real time. So don't take anything I'm saying here as, like, absolute declarative certain statements of truth. Not that I think you would or should be trusting me with that, um, but this is more just like my first pass at some interesting questions that listeners have sent in. So I've got a big list in front of me. I'll get through as many as I can. And then, yeah, that'll be the episode. Um, in January and February, I'll have quite a few more interviews coming out, and I've got some scripts for solo episodes as well. But I thought it might be nice to close the year, like I say, just with a like, here's some stuff people have been asking me. So let's get straight to that. Oh, just before I do, very, very quick plug for my book, What is Freedom? Conversations with Historians, Philosophers, and Activists, which is essentially pulling together a lot of the best material from the podcast on freedom, together with some uh, new stuff that you won't have um, heard before on the podcast, into one edited volume that has just a huge range of people sharing different ideas about what freedom has, should mean, does mean today. Um, that is now out in America, and it is available for pre-order in the UK. So that's on Amazon, OUP, fine booksellers, everywhere. It's, I think, £16 in the UK and about $20, 20-some dollars in the US. So pretty reasonably priced. Um, really, really interesting selection of voices. And yeah, it's a product that I put a lot of work and love into. And I'm genuinely pretty proud of and excited to to share with you all. Um, so yeah, please do check out my book. Um, also available in Kindle form, I think. I think it's about $10 for the Kindle version. Um, I personally prefer physical books, but if, you, if you're down with electronic books, it's available that way as well. It, whatever works for you. The, the hardback is a bit pricey, so like get it if you so feel compelled, but it's available in both hard and paperback from the start. Um, so yeah, now that I've plugged that, let's get straight to the episode. This is just a simple ask me anything to end the year. Okay, so, audience questions. This first one is from uh, Jerb the Humanist, who's another content creator I've done some stuff with. But he sent me a tweet and then had a comment. So the tweet is, quote, The term elite is one of the chief ideological mystifications of our time. 
it has some explanatory value if you qualify it as cultural elite, political elite, or power elite, and then historicize the relationship between those various elites, but otherwise an empty signifier. And then Job writes, I actually think elite is more interesting than your beloved criminal example, also good, because I have no clue what some people mean by it. End quote. So by criminal example, um, what he means is I've, I often use the example of the word criminal means different things to liberals and conservatives. And it's clear that um, it means different things, because if you plug in the liberal meaning into a conservative sentence, that sentence just doesn't make sense. Um, and so liberals often think that when conservatives talk about criminality, they're just they're just not using language correctly. That they're just not that they're they're making essentially meaningless or self contradictory statements. They're not. They just mean something else by the word. So I won't go through like my account of that. Um, but is elite similar to that? I mean, yeah, absolutely. Like clearly. Um, Elite means quite different things to different people, and it might even, as the question implies, have a broader range than criminal. Because criminal, I can think of sort of two big ones that tend to, two big conceptions of that concept that tend to get kicked around in contemporary discourse. Elite. Yeah, I, I, I haven't, like, this would be like an episode in itself for me to try and theorise this. But I suspect I could probably do, like, five or six different conceptions of elite just, like, off the top of my head. Um, and, yeah, as the original sort of quote implies, by itself, it can be a stat, it, it, it can mean really just a lot of different things, right? And it takes on a more substantive meaning in context, right? The words that are being used around it sort of clue you in as to which particular conception of the concept um, is being used in a particular sentence. So, like, as I said, are we talking about a cultural elite or political elite? Also, there's sort of broader context clues. If people you know, attack or complain about, quote, the elite, what are the characteristics that they're ascribing to the elite? Are they talking about people in ivory towers, a reference to academia? Are they talking about people being aloof or condescending towards the common man? Or perhaps are they talking about people being, um, greedy and corrupted by the profit motive and not caring about the, the workers. So you can see that with both of those, even though I've not given you a definition of an elite, you can kind of get clued in a little bit as to like what the term is supposed to be evoking by the sort of context in which it's used, by the argument in which it's embedded. Right, um, and and th this is really no different for elite than than for for a lot of different 
poetical terms. So another absolutely notoriously hard to pin down one would be populist, right? Like, what are we to make of a category that supposedly includes Trump, Bolsonaro, Bernie Sanders, and Erdogan, right? Like, you know, what, what common features can we, we say exist there, really? Um, but with Elite, um, I think there's a couple of things to be said about that, and I could talk about this stuff for a while. But one is, the, the fact that you have to kind of, like, deduce what's being meant by context clues is one of these things about political discourse that really bothers analysts and theorists, but actually doesn't, if you're not trying to theorise it, isn't as concerning as you might think it is. So what I mean by that is, if you, if someone says, elites and you want to know you want to sort of theorize what they're saying it's quite a lot of like difficult careful work to look at like how has elite been qualified and how what work is it doing in the argument what characteristics is the speaker ascribing towards this category of persons and like i say you have to do like some some actual hermeneutics to just work it out um the sort of good news though is that most people, most of the time, just sort of do that anyway, and subconsciously, and without really being told to do it. So, if I'm saying, you know, the elites that run this country, that, you know, they just have all the money, and, you know, they're just exploiting the workers, and the rest of us are working gig jobs, and, like, paying half our income in rent, and, um, you know, they have their mega yachts and so on, you already know, you already have a fairly thick conception of elite that I'm using here. By the way, I'm in Whitley Bay, there are always seagulls outside, there is, short of like an American-style hunting excursion, there's nothing I can do about that one. Um, back to the point, Toby, back to the point. Um, but, so I've, you, you know, with the sort of, sort of left conception of elites that I just gave you, you could probably start naming names of some of the people I'm talking about there, right? So you've already, you've, by just sort of listening to me, and like the way that like language goes into your brain, you've already got like a pretty clear intuition about the sort of um, conception of elite that I'm using there, even if neither me nor you could give you a necessary and sufficient conditions of that term, right? Um, I'll sort of pass on, like, is elite even sort of more contested than criminal? I haven't thought about that one, I'm not sure. I mean, in one sense, perhaps it is, in, like, I can think of more conceptions of it. Um, does this mean, however, that it is, um, an empty signifier? Um, well, the concept itself, not the conceptions of the concept, but the concept itself, is really broad, right? And there's no single definition you can give that will satisfy all of the real-world uses of the term. That's certainly true. With that said, I mean, I still use the term elite. That's part of my political speech. And I don't, think it, I don't think it's completely vacuous. I don't think the term by itself signifies absolutely nothing. 
Um, another way of putting that thought is to say, while the term can be used in a huge number of contexts, it can't be used in any context. That there are examples you could give that it would just clearly be wrong. So if I were to say my next door neighbour is a political elite, and you know, I just for the record don't live in like a super fancy neighbourhood or whatever, um, that would seem a weird statement, and I think people would want to ask, well, why? How? There would be like a follow-up question there. But then I could be completely vacuous. I could say something like, my t-shirt is a political elite. Not my t-shirt is an elite t-shirt, meaning like a good or high-grade t-shirt. But that, that statement would, would just kind of be unintelligible, right? So it can't do, it can do a lot of stuff, but it can't do, it can't mean anything. Um, and if you want to be a bit more positive about it, I don't know, I mean, there are, like, certain recurring themes in how elite gets used, right? It does, not always, but tend to be referring to a group with power, to a group with a comparatively small number of members, or to a group with, like, influence, perhaps, um, to a group that on the one side might be thought of as superior in some important way, but on the other might be thought of as arrogant or condescending in some other important way. I could go on. I could probably, you could probably think up about, like, seven or eight, right, like, recurring themes, which, like, aren't present in, like, every conception of the concept, but are, like, are there enough of the time that you can establish a little bit of a profile of what this term seems to mean. But you, you won't get an exact, like, necessary and sufficient conditions that covers every use of the term. And that's, that's just kind of the state of play. You, you, you might wish political language was a bit more exact, but you would only be wishing. And it's kind of implicit when people sort of say things about these terms just being so vague and being empty signifiers and so on. There's sort of an assumption that the goal of political speech is to be exact. Um, is to, the, the goal of political speech is sort of the same as the goal of, like, analytic philosophy. Um, and I'm not sure that's a helpful way of looking at it. Like, I mean, for one thing, is it, <laughs> you know, words are not agents. They don't have desires and goals in a strict sense. So thinking about them teleologically in any way is probably a bit confused. But nonetheless people don't use political speech. Their, their goal in it isn't primarily to be exact and to offer definitions. Their, their goal is, goals, plural, is to be persuasive, to have that speech be used, to have it orientate people to one, towards some course of action that you're urging that they take, to have speech that can then be picked up and used by other people in order that they will, you know, act in accordance with your political ideology, but also that, that those other people can pick up that language and use it as a tool to interpret and understand the world. So, concretely, elite 
as a term, if to say we're just using the, the left-wing conception, might be used as a tool for arguing for voting for left-wing candidates, or joining a union, or some political form of action like that. It also might be used as a tool for people to interpret and understand the world so that they read values of egalitarianism and so on into their day-to-day -day situations, and that they can think about new situations that they encounter without having to be told what they think in advance. It's a tool that will enable them to think for themselves. Now, if all of that is your goals in using particular terms in political language, if that's what you're wanting it to do, which I think sort of broadly that is what we're aiming for when we use political language, um, it actually often doesn't, it, it actively doesn't help to be precise. Being precise can be detrimental to the goals that you want your political speech to serve. It can make it less persuasive. It can make it less able to be accepted by a broad range of different people. You want your language to have enough give and take to it that different people can kind of see in it subtly different things while also buying in on some level to the foundational narrative that you're using it in service of. So I just sort of think sometimes when we talk about like how vague political language is, like, yes, it is. But it's not meaningless. We're not staring into the howling void here. It operates by clear rules and patterns. Those just aren't the patterns of analytic philosophy. And it serves clear purposes and goals, and it can be assessed as how useful it is in service of those goals. But those goals aren't the philosophic, logical goals of defining every term down. So. It exists in a universe that is knowable and comprehensible, but that is just structured by different rules than the ones that we often analyse it with. Enough on that. Um, which, which is to say, you want to you wanna have a bit more context when you're thinking about, is this term too vague? Sometimes it is too vague, but like... You want to have the context of what political speech is there for and what it's trying to do, as well as just, like, can I get this down to my philosophical bullet points? Sometimes you can, and I'm not saying that that sort of conceptual analysis isn't a useful process to run. And at some level, you do want standards of coherence, at least, in political speech. Um, but I think if the assumption is that the, 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 what makes political language meaningful and valuable is its ability to be distilled to definitions. Um, I, would I would really just want to complicate that picture a lot and just sort of say, well, that's one way in which political speech might be valuable, but there are actually a lot of other ways in which it might be valuable and is valuable and is useful and is used in the world. And I would at least urge people to keep those other ways in their head when they're thinking about these sorts of um, questions. Um, okay, let's, let's move on. Let's move on. I meant this to be like a quick fire round and I just prattled on forever. Um, number two, th this is quite a long question, so I'll, I'll 
just summarize it and do it quickly. Um, in your episode on political apocalypticism, do you see the same link between apocalypticism and status dissonance in radical Islam and Islamic terrorism? Um, this is this is a good question. Um, with the qualifier that like um the sort of ideology that motivates um Islamic terrorism is just not an area of expertise for me. Um and I think in fact uh, a lot of the sort of new atheist movement wanted to have a lot to say about this, which is fine, and wanted to have a lot critical to say of it, which linked it to Islam, which again is fine, I think. I think you can, you know, ideas are are always on the table for 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 critique, but seemed quite allergic to to sort of learning a lot about like Islamic theology and its history, um, and as a result, just had some baseline things they said, which then people reacted to in ways that also weren't helpful. Anyway, that's merely to say I want to be quite cautious about this one, in that it's not something I know a lot about, and if someone does, um, I'd be happy to take corrections on what I'm going to say here. Um, but my first pass would be yes, right? Um, because, again, correct me, I don't know a lot about it, but um, the strains of Islam that motivate, say, ISIS or Al-Qaeda or something are, are apocalyptic strains, right? They do believe that the I think ISIS in particular had a pretty advanced eschatology about what they were doing was seen as part of bringing about the end of the world. Um, I'm not a, you know, I don't know a huge amount about all the details of that story, but I'm pretty sure that's right. At the same time, I think I'm also correct in saying that the people who were drawn to these groups were not you know, the, the most disadvantaged and oppressed people in those societies. They, they, were, they were people who, in some respects, had markers of low status, but in some respects were, were reasonably high status. Like, a lot of them were people from the natural sciences, right? Like, a lot of the... the, the I remember a statistic somewhere, but didn't almost all of the 19 hijackers from 9-11, didn't almost all of them have higher education? Like, a lot of them had MAs and stuff, right? Um, and so, yeah, you just, you could tell a similar story here, that, like, that, like the, the prototypical Islamic terrorist is actually someone who's high status in some respects and low status in others. And also, not people who've spent their entire lives in a sort of very traditionalist society and been brought up with, um, I don't know how you'd say it, but like a, a sort of fundamentalist violent interpretation of Islam. Um, but people who were often sort of had lived in the West for quite some time and knew it and were familiar with it, but really foundationally rejected it as like evil. So, I'd probably wanted to know a little bit, I'd probably want to, like, have, like, read some stuff by sort of people who are sincerely advocating for that worldview and try and sort of get a sense of what their values are, um, which I haven't done. Um, but just at a first pass, 
you, you do that the pattern does seem to be there as well in that you have an apocalyptic ideology a pretty unpleasant and destructive one um at, at least when i say an unpleasant and destructive one i mean like isis not islam as a whole of course um and it seems to be attractive to people who feel like the world, the, the dominant social paradigm, is corrupt and evil and needs destroying, right? But those people aren't the people who are most harmed by that paradigm. They're the people whose relationship is actually pretty complicated with that social structure, which is to say they're status dissonant people. So, I don't know. I'll be corrected on that one. But at the first pass, like, yeah, the pattern kind of seems to fit there, right? I didn't talk about it in the episode just because, like, I know quite a lot about contemporary socialist movements. I'm familiar with them. I've been in them, you know. Um, and I know at least a little bit about early Christianity. Not an expert, but, like, I don't know, I've read a few dozen books at this point. And, you know, so I can talk a bit about that. But I did actually sort of have Islamic terrorism in mind, too. The other thing I had in mind, which is, is um, like, communist uprisings, like the people who took down the Tsars in Russia, that wasn't, like, there was a lot of sort of, like, dissident intellectuals in that. You know what I mean? Like, like the profile of someone like Lenin reads to me much more as status dissonance as opposed to, like, the most oppressed of the oppressed, right? But, I'm, again, I'm not an expert on, like, the Russian Revolution, so I didn't really bring that, that in. But th there's a lot of other areas you could sort of um, bring, it, bring it back to, right? Like, the, once you have the pattern in your head, you can kind of see it everywhere. Um, so, yeah, at a first pass, I'm tempted to say that one. Next. Um, any new reflections on Mill over the past year? What's the biggest struggle you have fitting him into the modern world? And would he have dug essential contestability as an idea, or dismissed it as something perhaps too flippant? Um, nothing earth-shattering on Mill over the past year. I'm steadily becoming more convinced by the thesis of Harriet Taylor as co-author or maybe even primary author of On Liberty. Um, biggest struggles you have fitting him into the modern world. I mean, I most clearly separate, um, like, a historic mill and, like, a theological mill. So just check out my Liberty Principle episode on that. I, I sort of talk through that distinction a lot. But in terms of, am I reading a text to try and say, um, I want something that's going to inform my political morality, or am I reading it trying to get down to, like, what did this, what can we say using the tools of historians about Mill as a historic figure? And I think those are importantly, although sometimes subtly distinct, questions. Um, there's, a, there's a fair amount about the historic Mill that's a bit troubling from a modern perspective. Probably the big one is he worked for the East India Trading Company. Um, so he was personally complicit in um, colonial rule. Uh, don't really see any particular point trying to, like, sugarcoat that one. Um, 
you know, Mill just comes out with stuff, like, because I often do read Mill as a contemporary, and then you're reading him, and he just comes out with stuff sometimes. You're like, oh yeah, these, these people aren't the same as us. Like, you can sometimes feel like this is something that's relevant to modern liberalism, which I think it is, and then go a bit too far and start feeling that, like, this is someone who's a contemporary of ours, which he isn't. You know, so I was reading Mill's correspondence with Herbert Spencer, um, and there's no, like, big, huge takeaways in that. It, it is sort of what you think it's going to be. Um, and then there's this bit where Mill just comes out with something on, like, yeah, the fact that diseases aren't killing people as much these days is enfeebling the race, and um, we need to really think about how we breed a hardier generation if we're going to be, like, saving all these lives through modern medicine. I'm like, what? Where did that just come from, Mill? It's like, oh yeah, of course, we, we haven't had Nazi Germany yet. Eugenics doesn't have a bad name yet. And indeed, in the generation after Mill, eugenics is going to be something liberals are really freaking keen on. Like, really unironically into. Um, they, they, not to say the liberals like Mill and that generation are like Nazis. They don't want to do Nazi things with eugenics. They want to do progressive things with eugenics. Um, that's the whole episode, just of itself. But you, you never get that unless you read the primary sources, because the secondary sources just kind of, like, skip over comments like that. Um, or it's only ever used if, um, like, say, conservatives who want to dunk on liberals by pointing out correctly that liberals were, were huge on eugenics um, from the sort of time of what proto-eugenics in Mill's time or through to maybe the Second World War or so. Um, conservatives, of course, were also very big fans of eugenics at the time. But that is just to say that, you know, you don't get that side of the story from the primary sources. And Mill's not, by far, not the worst offender here. But I just read that little bit, and I was like, oh, yeah, shit. Like, liberals at the time, like, didn't see anything wrong with, like, talking about, like, you know, the fitness of the race or something like that. You know, like, that, that, that didn't set off alarm bells for them in the same way as it would for us. And so anyway, that's just a small example of reading Mill and being like, oh yeah, these people really are not our contemporaries. Like, you know, I said when reading like the liberalism of like the you know, post-war period, like Isaiah Berlin and so on, like these people are, are thinking through political morality in a world that is so, so different to ours. But like, it's at least in some senses intelligible. I think once you get back to the 1800s, you're, you're like, it's so much different again and like you're getting to the point where a lot of the ways that these people thought are frankly just not really fully i'm, I'm not going to say fully in, they're not they are intelligible to us like we can read them and understand them but they're not they're maybe just nowhere near as intuitive and maybe to some degree not fully recoverable by us that we're never going to really get inside their heads and to the extent that sometimes I feel like I'm really inside Mill's head, actually what's happening is I've become comfortable with the creation of my own construction. Um, but anyway, that's, that's like some stuff. Oh, and final part, what, what would Mill have thought about essential contestability as an idea? I cannot speak for the, the historic Mill with confidence. There is a wonderful quote from Mill on, from Chapters of Socialism. 
where he says one of the mis- quote one of the mistakes often is committed and the source of the greatest one of the greatest sources of errors in practical affairs is assuming that the same word always stands for the same aggregation of ideas end quote which is sort of like a rough first pass at essential contestability, right? The, the, the ideas of, like, the mutatability of language and so on, they don't start with Wittgenstein, or they don't start when Gale does his essential contestability paper. Like, they're not... You know, they, I, I think modern theorists of language have got it a bit sharper, and they've developed words and terminology that we can use to describe this. We can talk about family resemblances, we can talk about word games, we can talk about essential contestability. But it's not as if there haven't been people who've been having these sorts of thoughts before. Um, My read of Mill is that he's very aware of this. And on, on Liberty, he's he does seem to be aware that he's using liberty in a way that other people are using liberty in a different way. Um, so yeah, I, I almost wonder if the historic mill might kind of find essential contestability, like a bit of an overblown, overly academic way of expressing of describing something about the nature of language that is actually pretty mundane and obvious. Like, like his response might sort of be like, I mean, yeah, of course, like, yeah, does, yeah, like, yeah, of course, but, like, yeah, you don't need to, like, make it this huge thing, like, that's just what language is. I almost wonder if that would be kind of his reaction, but I've absolutely no idea. That's pure, pure, unknowable speculation. Next question. What do you think average Americans think about European centre-left parties? Depends on the Americans, doesn't it? And I have to say, Americans in general don't know a huge amount about European politics. British people actually don't know a huge amount about mainland European politics. Um, there's a few different ones, isn't there? So, like, on the political right, I think there's a view that, like, only America is free, and, um, like, Europe is, like, not not really free, you're not really exceptional in the, in the... I guess the sort of more mature reflection on that is... How would I say this? This might be, like, a centre-right perspective from America, is, you know, a sensible centre-right American might say something like, well, look, you know, obviously the UK isn't East Germany under communism or anything. You know, it's a perfectly decent capitalist society with a mixed economy and representative democracy. For my money, the American centre-right person might say, I sort of prefer America because the overall scope and impact of the state is less. Um, I'm not interacting with the state when I see my doctor. I'm not interacting with the state as much or as heavily if I want to set up a business. Um, The types of restrictions um, that might be placed on people in terms of journalistic libel or hate speech, you know, if I'm writing something controversial about 
Muslims, and I say that only because I was just talking about radical Islam, I don't have to worry that suddenly I might be in trouble with the courts for hate speech. I can honestly inquire about that. And, you know, the UK or France or whatever isn't horrible, but we also just have seen that that sort of very heavy-handed, overreaching state is a bit stifling, that America has been for the past 50, 60, 70, 80 years, more creative, more at the forefront of science and technology than European states have. There's something just a bit stagnant about what the European left has done to its societies that's not awful or evil, but is perhaps suboptimal. And America, there are greater risks to living in America. The safety nets are not as strong or not as advanced. You can fall farther and harder in America, and some people do. But overall, extreme poverty, like I can't get enough to eat poverty, is not necessarily higher in America than it is in many places in Europe. And we achieve a great deal more, and we're a great deal more affluent and prosperous. So, overall... The, the, U, the European left is kind of like a bit of a big, wet blanket. Like, it keeps you safe to a degree, but it's also kind of suffocated those societies. I don't know. That's, that's me trying to steel man the American right. I don't believe any of that, but that's, um, that's like the best articulation I can give of, like, an American conservative. Um approach to um to like what they um think about the european left that's sort of what i've gleaned from them anyway but then of course the left left because like i'm in the uk right and whenever i see an american commentator because a lot of people the fault i follow are sort of not just left but like somewhere from the progressive to like red flag communists right so like what I see them is just just that they've got really involved in like the a, a sense of grievance on the part of Jeremy Corbyn and a real dislike for Keir Starmer because he's a sort of much more moderate centre lefty type figure, and so that's a sort of... Because I think that's misinformed, because I think they're reading that through the lens of, like, as a certain section of the left reads everything through this lens, the lens of the Bernie Sanders-Hillary Clinton 2016 primary. And that that's not right. Like, Jeremy Corbyn is not Bernie Sanders. There are important differences there. And Keir Starmer isn't Hillary Clinton, for that matter, either. Um, but that's actually new. The other, the, the narrative that the, the left left in America have had um, has kind of been one of, like, party envy, that they wished that they had political parties that, that were as good as our left wing, that they, that they are present difficulties with the Labour, current Labour Party aside. Um, they see the European left as more aggressive and more successful and more electorally competent than the Democrats. They would say, look, I'm not actually putting words in their mouth. Um, AOC said exactly this. She said, in any other country, uh, me and Biden would be part of different parties and that actually the Democrats are a centre-right party by most European standards. And what we really want is a socialist party 
in the same way that you know, particularly Sweden or Norway or Denmark have, but even something like Germany or France or the UK has, um, we you know don't have that sort of strong left tradition in the US, and that they, for the longest time, have almost looked to Europe as like a model for what they want. I don't agree with any of that either, but I guess the question wasn't like, what's my assessment of it? But like, what, what, what do Americans think? I think that's something quite a lot of Americans thought for, for quite a lot of the time. Um, which again, I, I would definitely want to, to challenge certain aspects of that story. Um, I think by most sort of empirical comparative measures, um, the Democrats are a sort of average left-wing party. They're sort of in a similar ballpark to most mainstream left parties in Europe in terms of where they stand on various policies. You know, the one big difference, of course, is healthcare, because, um, say, in the UK, um, we got a nationalised health system quite early, and we've just kept it. Um, but even in most of Europe, most of Europe does not have, you know, um, nationalised healthcare. Most of Europe has some sort of very, very regulated, but some sort of market, you know, insurance-based based system. Um, so even on healthcare, I don't think the, 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 the parties, you can really say that, like, European, the European left is way out to the left of the American left. It's not obviously even that out there on questions of, like, um, taxation and so on. Um, the Democratic Party currently is, if they can ever pass it, but is pretty clear about wanting to raise taxes on the wealthy to just do, like, a downward distribution of wealth, um, at least as a goal, that's more ambitious than whatever Starmer's been saying about, like, we're a pro-business party and where business succeeds, the country succeeds, and we're not trying to be punitive, at least rhetorically. Um, Biden and the, the, the sort of Biden Democratic Party has been, you know, a bit to the left. And certainly on immigration, the Democrats are to the left of a lot of European left-wing parties. Um, on the sort of multiculturalism, pluralism, toleration. Yeah, so it's, it's not that straightforward. But anyway, I said I wouldn't do an evaluation, but those are like some of the things that come to mind when I think about what Americans think of the European left. Um, but in, in both of those cases, I think Americans aren't really engaging with the European left as it exists. They're sort of engaging with it as almost just like a series of proxy battles for debates within American politics, and they're thinking about it purely through the lens of American politics. Um, and there's not, like I said, there's just not a lot of understanding of European politics in America sort of on its own terms, I don't think. So anyway, that's that one. Um, maybe too open-ended. But what makes you like orthodox Marxism, um, but stop short of actually being a, a, a Marxist? Yeah, this, this, this question's fun. So, if you check out my Ideologies of the Ancients series, I 
do I do what what what, what, what do I do? I'm just gonna do this all in one take. By the way, I haven't actually stopped yet, so um, small errors are gonna stay in. This is really just the live feed from my brain. So um, <laughs> yeah, apologies, I guess. Um, but like I say, I'm trying to go for a more casual tone on this one. Okay, so why do I like Orthodox Marxism, but why am I not an Orthodox Marxist? Um. Firstly, I guess there's a question about what do we mean by orthodox Marxism. So, it, it, technically, this comes to kind of like a split that sometimes gets called the revisionist controversy, where you have people like Edward Bernstein, who sort of does evolutionary socialism. Um, and then you get figures like Rosa Luxemburg, who are sort of saying, no, we don't want to revise Marx, we want to stay true to Marx. What, what a lot of that is about is about, I mean, eschatology, essentially. It's like, is, is it reform or revolution? Are, are we tearing down the state, or are we sort of electing democratic socialist parties to participate within it? Um, that's, I guess, actually not what I'm really tracking when I talk about orthodox Marxism. When I say I like orthodox Marxism, when I say I'm using orthodox Marxism, that sort of end-time stuff isn't what I'm tracking, because there's a huge amount in Marxism, other than just, like, the workers' revolution. Um, what I'm tracking is method and epistemology. I'm, I'm specifically looking at, like, historical materialism, the idea that the thing that's fundamental to a society is its economic substructure, and its ideological superstructure is entirely sort of contingent on that, that the ideology is an after-the-fact rationalization of the underlying economic conditions. Okay, so, full disclosure, I did have a little break there. I, I intended to do this all in one take, and I was getting excited, and I thought I could, um, but then the door goes, and in through the door comes the entire family, and all the dogs, and they're all whiffing. And I could tolerate a bit of seagull background noise, but the, there was a lot of dogs, and they were doing a lot of whiffs. Um, so I'm at my parents' house now in Whitley Bay, and they have dogs, and my older sister and her family are here, and they have kids, and they also have dogs. And so... Um, um, I, I lost a bit of audio to just this, this fleet of whiffuses coming in and whiffing away, and so I took a quick break. Um, but apart from the whiffing, I think I could have done this in, in, uh, in one take. But the whiffing has subsided, I've got a glass of wine, let's continue. So, Orthodox Marxism, Historical Materialism. So yeah, I mean, so where this comes from actually is, this was like in my undergrad time, I did, like, an uncredited course, so in other words, um, it wasn't, like, a, a course I was, like, a, sitting an exam for or anything, but they had a really good course on the history of Marxism, and it was almost a year long, I think it was, like, two full terms long of two lectures a week, um, and I wasn't, like, part of it, it wasn't my programme, but, um, anyone can go to any lecture at the university I went to, and it didn't, like, like, overlap with any of my other lectures, so I just sort of took the course and did the reading. And by the end of that, um, 
I kind of had come away with an appreciation for a lot of it. It wasn't like an indoctrination, it was a very just sort of dry, his sort of marks and how to understand his system, here's what subsequent writers in that tradition did with it. And that, you'll notice that has kind of informed at times. Um, a, a lot of it, it snuck into other episodes um, that I've done. Um, I, I probably should at some point try and find my notes for that and review them. Um, and it might be interesting to try and do a few episodes that sort of replicated it. Although, yeah, maybe not. But anyway. Um, and I did sort of come to an appreciation of um, this sort of historic materialism method. And as something that kind of vibes and makes sense, and is as much as anything, and here's why I like it, a really interesting way to look at the world, and one that is informative and quite radical and really makes you see things really quite differently. And I just really appreciate that feeling. So I forget if it was my Ideologies of the Ancients or my Popper versus Adorno one, but, but here's the way I sort of explain materialism is, and, and you know this, right, that, that, like materialism in the philosophy tradition doesn't mean the same as it means in just like everyday discursive English. Um, and idealism doesn't mean the same thing. Um, uh, it, it, uh, yeah, materialism and idealism are ways of thinking about history in terms of what's fundamental. And that you, you, there's not one thing that's either or. These are sort of families of ideas. And there's many different types of materialists and many different types of idealists, of course. But yeah, at, at its simplest, it's sort of like idealism is like people have ideas and they act on those ideas. Um, and, you, you know, you want to get something like Hegel. Hegel sort of thinks that, like... God, you know, I'm not going to get into Hegel... Um, but Hegel's like quite a sort of strong idealist. And then Marx obviously is like quite a strong materialist. Materialism is the idea that sort of the, the material conditions, hence the name, come first and ideas come second. Um, I think a lot of the time that sounds intuitive, but you know, a really orthodox materialism is much more hardline and far-reaching than just the idea that people are reacting to, like, say, the unemployment rate or something like that. It's much more fundamental than that. Your entire mind is formed by you rationalising the, the structures within which you find yourself. It's a much more profound insight than just, like, capitalists lie to the working class to perpetuate the system. So anyway, the metaphor, or not metaphor, but like the sort of story I use to sort of think about this is imagine you have a friend, and I, this, is, this story isn't original to me. I got this from Charles A. Anderson's Lectures on the History of Political Thought, which is a great series, um, is imagine you've got a friend who's starting a new job and they're like, you know, I'll do it for the money, but like, ah, there's a lot of stuff about this company or organisation... I disagree with. But then actually it's a pretty comfortable job, it pays very well, it's something that l l like fits in easily with their life, you know. And suddenly these ideas they had about like, you know, is this organisation ethical, they start, you know, picking up other ideas from their workplace, 
about like actually see in SeaWorld the orca whales enjoy being kept into captivity and they wouldn't live as long in the wild and that actually this is an ethical thing to do for conservation. It doesn't matter if those ideas are true or not, but you come to accept them because they're what's being said by everyone around you. But more than that, no one's self-image of themselves is that they're a bad person in the job of perpetuating injustice. No one thinks of themselves that way. And after a while, you, you, don't, you not only start saying them too, but this person starts believing them as well. And doesn't every organisation you've ever worked in have narratives that sort of both justify itself and also just sort of like justify the day-to-day -day work you find yourself doing, that this is a good thing to be doing and that you're interested in it and you like it and you appreciate it, might not always be positive either, but you find a way of making sense of your place in the world, right? And before too long, this person would not work anywhere else. I've, I've known that, I've seen that, I've been that, right? Now, map that to everything. Everything is like that. Societies are like that, different historical periods are like that. There's no, like, point at which someone sits down and draws up a blueprint and says, this is what society's going to be like, and then they just... No. No. Societies develop certain modes of production, which is to say, you know, we have ways of producing things like food and housing and so on. So, you know, feudalism is a mode of production. Um, capitalism is a mode of production. I think the more, the, the better, frankly, historical materialists will say there's not one big thing that's the mode of production. There's lots of different things going on at the same time. And societies will be partly a capitalist mode of production, but partly other modes of production as well, right? But whatever they are, the people in them will rationalise them in a certain way, their leaders will rationalise the overall society in a certain way, and they'll create narratives which are fictitious in a sense, but sincerely believed, that, that there was some moment where it was all designed, that there was a reason for doing all this a particular way, and that that reason makes sense and we believe in it. And, and the insight there is not that an ideology is a lie the powerful tell to the powerless, is that ideology is a story the powerful people tell to themselves, right? The most important people to indoctrinate in any society are the powerful, not the powerless. It doesn't matter what the powerless think, not really. There's not much they can do about it. And the powerless will sort of absorb, there'll be a sort of trickle-down, if you will, effect of the dominant ideology will sort of get washed onto the powerless. But the most important thing is that the capitalist really does believe he is um, the author of his own actions, that he, you know, I made that, to paraphrase Mitt Romney, that he has created the value for which he's been rewarded, that he is in a society which rewards hard work, that the structure of society reflects a hierarchy of merit. I, I don't think people who say these sorts of lines are being fake. I think they believe them by and large, right? 
because the most important people to indoctrinate are the people in charge of society. They're the most indoctrinated, in a way, right? And that's what ideology is, and it's all that's going on, and it really couldn't be any other way, right? So that's, that's like a very short overview of historical materialism. I just think that's a really interesting way to look at the world, and I in many ways prefer the hardline version than the softer version. Because it often, there's sort of a softer modern version, which is like, oh, well, you know, when the economy's good, people support the system, and then they'll maybe, you know, there's a crash, and people... It, it's much more totalising that. All of your thoughts come from your economic conditions. I think that's so cool and so interesting to think about it. And like I say, it is kind of buried under a lot of, like, Marxist jargon a lot of the time. And you do, I mean, my God, I always say ideologies are like languages, and the sort of le learning to think in a particular ideological frame can be a bit like learning a new language. There's no a bit like in Marxism. You are learning a new language. There is a lot of specialised terms. And, of course, even Marxists don't agree with what, like, you know, alienation means or something like that. You know, um, you know, you, there is a lot of Marxist jargon you kind of have to learn to be able to read this stuff and, like, enjoy it. Um, and a lot of what I've tried to do with, the Marx, with Marxism on this podcast is sort of demystify it a bit, and that's a very subtle and not at all funny pun, because demystification is one of these Marxist jargon terms. Um, but... I think there's something there, and I think one of the things I was trying to do with ideologies of the ancients is say, a lot of the ways of thinking about the world that we think are a bit dated, like a hardline historical materialism, like, and this is almost the exact opposite, like a great men of history, theory of history, which is also, you know, regarded as an embarrassing relic, there's actually a lot to these. And the world is actually a lot more interesting and sometimes a lot more explicable when you use these ways of understanding it. Now, so, so why do I pull up short and say, well, I'm not a, a full Marxist? I, well, how would you decide which one is foundationally and absolutely true? I think historic materialism can generate interesting and useful insights, but I also think the same about the great men of history theory, right? I think the same of sort of what I've been calling domination theory, what would it even look like to have a proof that one of them is foundationally true? I, don't, I just think we don't know enough about the world to really say that. And a, a sort of foundationally true account of the world that really describes the social and political world in the same way as, like, the laws of physics do. I'm not sure it would look anything like one of these sort of narratives that, have, that are just like stories, essentially. And that's how we comprehend them. I'm not sure it would even look like that. I'm not sure what it would look like, but I'm, I'm not sure it would look like that. Um, I think to, to go full feet in, not only is this an interesting way of looking at the world, this is the only way of looking at the world, and it's, like, scientifically true, and other ways are scientifically false. That just seems to me to be preposterously, epistemically overconfident. Like, that's, that's too much. That's, that's more than the arguments which support this theory, which I do not think are trivial, but that's more weight than those arguments will bear, ultimately, right? Um, 
So anyway, let's do let's do one more because this last one is a good one to close with. Um. So this is in context of American politics. Now that we've done what you've argued for, i.e. voting in Biden to get out Trump without any real leverage left to us other than things like protests or civil unrest, how do we now push him left as you've said the plan was, especially as he's already pivoting to the right? Okay, so a couple of things here. Um, this was from a month ago, November. Um, I'm not sure Biden is pivoting to the right. I'm not sure that's how I'd characterise the overall ideological arc of his presidency thus far. I think it has been a reasonably consistent progressive vision that certainly doesn't go as far as many people on the left want, but has been generally pro-environment, generally pro-worker, generally pro-downward distribution of wealth, and generally, not exclusively, but generally non-interventionist. You know, we had the Afghanistan withdrawal and the number of drone strikes, although they are still occurring and certainly warrant scrutiny, is just massively lower than it was under Trump. Um, so I, the idea that this is like a right-wing presidency, I just, not, not relative to any of our last few precedents, certainly. Relative to, like, your ideal social democratic society, maybe, but that's kind of a weird benchmark. Um, I want to zero in, actually, and it, this, this really just occurred to me when I was thinking about this question, that the plan was to get him in and push him left. I kind of feel like... So, if there's, like... Two, two positions in sort of American, in the American left, the, the sort of pro-voting and the anti-voting position. I feel like get him in and push him left is not exactly what those of us in the pro-voting camp have been saying. It's not a million miles away either. That is, I think, the characterization of our arguments that the anti-voting people use. And I don't think it's, like, a defamatory characterization. I don't, you know, I think that's sort of what they've summarised and taken away from what we're saying. But we don't specifically use... I, certainly, I've never used that language. Because um, that's not exactly how I would have put it. How I would have put it, how I did put it, had a bit more teeth to it than that, actually. My critique was a little bit sharper, which what I wasn't really saying is I've got this brilliant plan for, for how to get America to democratic socialism, and that the, the, the sort of chain of causality of that plan runs through a Biden presidency. And if that's what people imagined our argument was, maybe we didn't make it well, or maybe we were misunderstood... My argument had a bit more teeth in that whatever your what if you think about all the different ways you might exert leverage on a political party to try and change its overall platform or whatever, trying to exert leverage by withholding votes isn't a good strategy. It doesn't work 
and it has huge liabilities to it. That's more the critique. It's not. I'm not saying that like there's necessarily some brilliant plan out there to get to a sort of utopian democratic socialism. And indeed, I mean, in the episode I did immediately after the election, I was fairly, it's called Quo Vardis because I'm pretentious like that, I was fairly sober about what I thought might follow from that presidency. I think, especially because when I was making that episode, I kind of thought we'd lost the Senate. I didn't know that we'd get both the Georgia seats. And I was pleasantly surprised that we did. But, like, I was sort of envisaging a Biden presidency with a narrow Republican Senate majority. And so I was pretty cautious about what I thought would follow. Um, so in a, in a sense, anything we've gotten out of this presidency, which has not been trivial, like, I did think the COVID rescue package was very good, um, infrastructure, a bit bland, but, like, it's, it's, no, it's good, it's a bill that needed passing, um, and, you know, maybe we might have got something out of Build Back Better, or that there might still be something that could be salvaged there, I don't know. But all of that has, in many ways, exceeded my expectations of what I thought we'd get out of this. Um, so, it's, it's not that, like, because here, here's the thing, you know, if the, if the question always is, but, you know, Toby, but how do we get to, like, the, the, the sort of utopian socialism, is we're probably not going to, in the short to medium run? Um, and a lot of the arguments we made, which I don't think were really seriously reckoned with, were about harm reduction, right? In 2016, one of the big arguments we made is that the court is on the line, the Supreme Court is on the line in this election, and losing this election will likely mean an entrenchment of Citizens United and all of that, it will likely mean the end of Roe in a substantive sense. It will likely mean really the end of a lot of environmental protections, a lot of worker protections, and I could go on. That has more or less happened now. Like, the people who made that argument were predictively correct in it, right? And... I think one of the things about American politics is it's, although it can be bonkers at times, it also has this quality of just being glacial in its movement, and you see the effects of particular decisions or elections years, decades afterwards. You know, there's a, there's a good case that we got Obergefell, the um, gay marriage decision, because Biden managed to block Robert Bjork from getting on the court Christ, when was that, the 70s or 80s, right? Like, it is just slow moving like that. And so now that it does look like something's going to happen to abortion rights in America, a lot of people are like, come on, Democrats, do something, do something. It's like, the, the, the point at which that, that, that process could have been influenced was in 2016. And there's not another obvious intervention point, other than we just have to hold the presidency for Christ. At least two or three terms. At least, I think, realistically. We just have to hold the presidency. Like, that's the answer to that. Um, and that was the argument. And I don't really think 
there's anything, like, wrong with that argument. That was a correct argument of just, like, harm avoidance. Given all the harm I've outlined, it would have been worth voting for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Whatever your misgivings about her, of which I share many, like, that was just an outcome worth, worth preventing. Um, but in terms of, like... I mean, here's the thing. There's a very simple answer to how do we get more left-wing stuff out of Biden. Because I thought the Build Black... BBB plan was good. There was a lot of stuff in there to like. It wasn't as flashy as Medicare for All or something, but the child tax credit was good. Spending a trillion dollars on clean energy was good. <sighs> Some slightly weird stuff, but, but there was a lot of good stuff in there. Um, a lot of the stuff they wanted to do with immigration was good. We obviously have to do stuff about voting rights and protecting our democracy, which is getting filibustered right now. But there's an easy answer to all of this which is we just have to increase our congressional majorities. And I know people hate this. They're like, oh, we already elected you to get it done, and now you're saying we need to elect you again? And, the, the, I mean, I share your frustrations at, like I say, the glacial pace of change, and I felt a bit dispirited watching some of the legislative manoeuvring here. But yes. Yeah. What, what did you... What, what did you imagine participating in democracy was going to look like? That, that after one election, it would all work out? I, I do, I, if that was the expectation, I don't really... Like, that's just not the world, you know? And the thing with 2020 is the American left both... Centrists, liberals, left-left people, we took that election seriously. Passions ran high in the primary. You know, Bernie ran again, and we know how strongly people feel about Bernie. People also really felt strongly about Warren. People really liked her. I think a lot of people really felt like, this isn't a politician I unambiguously like. Not like, oh, this policy's better than the opponent. No, I like this person, I want them in. And then, of course, Bernie people and Warren people fell out with each other, and I tried to discuss and theorise that in one of my episodes. I spent a lot of time on picking that primary, so I won't do that again. But you know what? People said a lot of dumb stuff in that primary. There were a lot of heated arguments. People said unpleasant personal things, which is always going to happen in any election. You could wish they were a bit more nice and civilised, but you'd only be wishing. And then, more or less, we came together, did the right thing, and got Trump out of office. And that was great! Like, think of the damage that was done just by his first time. I was talking about the court. Anything else you care to mention as well? You know, for, like, the one election since the sort of modern socialisty left in America has been a thing. The one that in my lifetime I can remember, we just took the electoral process seriously. And we took down an incumbent president and got a very narrow, but nonetheless a governing trifecta. It was good. It was great. I was really proud of us, actually. Like, it was like, okay. It felt like a maturing moment. And then... That feels like it's just all gone again. And the sort of work we had to do to get to that place of just a mature relationship 
with what representative democracy looks like anywhere in the world, just seems to have evaporated. And we're getting this, well, the Democrats, you know, haven't done everything I wanted, or, let's be fair, everything they promised. So I'm not going to vote in the midterms. Look, you know, we would be, if we could have, let me just fantasize here, 55 seats in the Senate and a 30-vote margin in the House. If we could have that, we would be in a radically different country. Someone asked me, oh, well, what do you really think would happen if 90% of the country voted Democrat? Do you really think anything would change? And I was like, of course! <laughs> of course it would! Everything that's died to filibuster in the Senate, I think with another five senators, passes. There's not... I think the filibuster, keeping it, is really a minority position in the party now. There might be another one or two holdouts. I don't think there's five. So, you know, you get the substantive reforms I want. You get stuff like DC statehood, which will be huge. You get the pro-democracy reforms. Maybe, if we hold our breath, you get court reforms. But then you get all the stuff on immigration, you get all the stuff on the environment, you get all the stuff on workers' rights, you get all the downward distributions of wealth. As I say that, it does seem, I don't want to say impossible, it does seem less likely that we will retain the House and the Senate. The Senate map actually isn't terrible for Democrats in 2022, and isn't terrible just means it's bad as opposed to apocalyptic, because the Senate's never good for us. But it just looks, I mean, so far the data we're seeing seems like we're on course for the usual thing of, like, a midterm rebuke to an incumbent president. And this is just, like, there's, like, multiple layers on which our democracy is not functioning properly, and saying, oh, we won one election, and it's not all fixed yet, just seems to me like a really serious misunderstanding of where we're at. Like, to put it another way, I don't think we would be in a significantly different place if uh, Bernie or Warren had won the presidency. I think what you'd see is if we had Warren or Bernie in, you would have a more aggressive use of executive actions. So they probably would have tried, like, some sort of... The president can, like, write off student debt without Congress. I think I think both of them would have at least tried that. I think it would have got struck down by the Supreme Court. I think they would have tried to govern more aggressively. Um, but I think, you know, if the Supreme Court knocked down Biden's... Um, moratorium on um, bankruptcies and foreclosures. They would have knocked down Bernie or Warren's. But maybe just in being a bit more procedurally aggressive, you'd have, there'd have been a bit more done on the executive level. I don't really see how it would have been different on the legislative level. Like, I think there's some myth where, like, Bernie takes Joe Manchin into the back alley and just beats him up or something. Where, like, if you just, like dick about it enough and aggressive enough then you'll you'll get the key votes into line 
maybe there's something like that that could be done with cinema. Certainly, I think she should be primaried. I don't know what you're supposed to do about Mansion. Like, we just don't have leverage on that guy. Um, but even without the particular personalities, trying to get substantive reforms through a 50-50 Senate is just rough. And in many ways, I don't have, like, a detailed point-by-point -point critique of Biden and how he's gone about this. I think that will come later. You know, I think if we lose Congress in 2022, there'll be a bit of a reckoning to be had and a bit of a sort of post-mortem to be done. I think we, we need to just, you know, this is really complicated and I don't, I don't know, like, exactly what the right legislative strategy is. But the point is merely to say, oh, we voted for Biden and we, oh, there goes the whiffs, like I said. Um, the, we voted for Biden and we didn't get this good stuff. I think people are imagining a world in which we voted for Warren or Bernie and, like, things are really different. I think the tone and tenor of the presidency would be very different. I think that the president, if it was, let's just say, Bernie, would be much more rhetorically aggressive. I also think the opposition to them would be hysterical if it was a woman or a self-avowed socialist, right? Um, so the tone and tenor might be different. I'm not sure the substance would be. In fact, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be, right? I guess you might say, oh, but Bernie was so popular that he'd have won 55 seats in the Senate. There is very little evidence to suggest that that is true. I think Bernie would have gotten about the same number of votes as Biden. Maybe slightly fewer, but similar ballpark. I don't, I don't see the data to suggest that we're going to start picking up plus R10 red states if Bernie's at the top of the ticket. I don't see that. Or Warren, to be fair. So, you know, there, there's nobody we could have put in the presidency who really, I think, would have been able to successfully govern in a way of just passing the stuff that 98% of the Democratic representatives agree on, right? Like, almost everyone, apart from apparently effing Manchin, agreed on... DC statehood, say, agrees on immigration reform, say, agrees on the child tax credit, say, agrees on paid time off, say, right? Um, so, because, like, our system is failing, there's multiple vectors of failure here, right? Um, so just very quickly, there's institutions, right? If you count up the popular vote in the Senate, across the three elections that constitute that chamber, Democrats didn't win 50% of the vote. They won 55% of the vote. That's why I said 55 senators. They won by 10 points in the popular vote for that chamber, right? Again, with the House, the House is less extreme, um, but there's a partisan advantage there, um, which will likely be perpetuated in the next round of redistricting. Um... The presidency, again, you know, Biden's win was much more impressive in terms of popular vote than it was in terms of electoral college vote. And I suspect we'll probably go into 2024 with a map where if we only get a one or a two point win in the popular vote, we'll lose. Maybe even that won't be enough, right? Um... 
So we, we've got a situation where Democrats won reasonably comfortably across, um, across the domains, but we're, we're like razor thin, like 50-50 in Congress, even though we got 10% more votes. So that's, that's a problem. Right, and the institutions are designed to slow things down, and we have stuff like the filibuster, which I've gone on about at length. That's one domain of failure. Another domain of failure is the media and how they report on politics, because the media, I think even they know they fucked up in 2016, where Hillary's emails, I still am sometimes reminded of this, Hillary's emails got more attention than all of the Trump scandals and all other stories about Hillary Clinton combined. That's astounding to me. But now we're in a place, um, Magdi Semru, who I had on the podcast, has written about this quite well, where the media just isn't telling people what the Democrats are doing. Like, and, and, and you know, a final domain of failure is the electorate, right? Like, you know... We're not voting to keep people who are telling us they plan to overturn election results out of power. We're also... This is what the Democrats have done and are attempting to do in the past year. The most popular agenda of any president in my lifetime. Like, like I said, the child tax credit polls at like 80%. All of the key items are plus 60, plus 70%. The Republican Party is uniformly against them. And they're going to be rewarded for it, electorally. Or that, that seems to be what's going to happen. Um, and I think it's easy on the left to just go, Democrats suck. They could have better messaging. With the implication that if lefties were in charge, it would be better. But here's the rub, guys. And this hurts me to say it, but it wouldn't. And in many ways... What we are witnessing here is the failure of our theory of change. Our theory of political change. Because the left, and me, I did this, advocated for a theory of political change in which you get away from trying to help people out by doing these sort of tailored, micromanaged, market-based solutions. You just do big, universal programs that benefit people. You create constituencies for them, and then you say, if you want to preserve these, vote for us. Right? That, that was always sort of the plan. Um, the other part of the plan was go big and then compromise. Put forward big big spending packages to don't don't compromise in advance to try and get republican votes like like the critique has been of obama with with um, the affordable care act put out what you want to achieve and if you know you only end up with half of that at the end of the day fine well we tried that with the build back better and we really didn't end up with much of it at all but that we did the left that was the leftist playbook and we did it and I was always a bit concerned about that side of things, but I was, a, I was an advocate of just do big things that benefit people. And we have, and it just hasn't tracked, you know? Like, the child tax credit thing kind of blows my mind a little, because this is something that's putting bank money into the bank accounts of, like, a good chunk of the population, right? 
It's overwhelmingly popular. And the theory was, we'll do it for a year, and then no one will dare vote to take it away. No single Republican in Congress will vote for it. And they're clearly not scared of the electoral consequences of that. That's a left theory of change. And one of the things that really terrifies me about this now new mood on left Twitter of like, well, we voted for the Dems, they've done nothing, so we're not going to show up for them next time, is if we establish the press, if, if it... If we try a left theory of change, and it's seen to fail badly, I say there's a huge red wave and the Republicans come in with really big majorities in 2022, the verdict on that will be that it was a failure, and that we won't be trying that again, will we? So, I'm pretty invested in having the Biden agenda succeed, because in many ways, it's what we've been arguing for. Less rhetorically combative, to be sure. It doesn't have the stuff on healthcare that we wanted, Medicare for all and so on. But it, you know, it has some other good stuff. But on the rest of it, I mean, it really is the Green New Deal in all but name. And I don't want that project to be a failure, and I worry that it's going to be. Um... And so, you know, what can we do is we can just keep on taking democracy seriously. We took it seriously in 2020. Like, how much better of a country would it be if we took it that seriously every single election? But I'm not sure it is, and I did this episode where I said... Are, are we on a downward trajectory? Are we in a state of democratic decline? Maybe, was my answer. And maybe, you know, maybe the Biden presidency will just be a bit of a respite and Trump will win again in 2024. I don't know. I don't even know if he'll run, but it could happen. It's not certainly not impossible, right? And like I say, there are multiple interlocking parts of this system, the media, the electorate, the way we elect representatives, the way we assess those representatives, the structures those representatives work within, there are multiple interlocking parts, all of which are failing. And those failures, what's the word here? Those, those failures knock on into each other. Those, those failures interact and com compound. That's the word I'm going for. Those failures compound each other. So, yeah, that was a cheery answer, wasn't it? Um, so there is a very obvious thing that, that, that we can do to continue getting left stuff, is to continue to have a democratic congress, and ideally one with increased majorities, and ideally one where we... I don't think we even need 60 Senate seats. I think we need 55. Um, I think that would do it for most... I don't think there's five votes against the filibuster in the Senate. Or to keep it, I should say, sorry. Um, but that's, that is a tall order, and it would require the left to approach the midterms with the level of seriousness that we did 2020. Uh, right now we're not. Maybe, maybe we can get ourselves back there. We've got a year. Maybe we can get ourselves back there over the course of the next year. 
I certainly wouldn't want to 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 rule that out. But yeah, I think I'll pause it there because I think like how should we be thinking about American democracy? And how should we be thinking about, like I say, these multiple intersecting and compounding areas of, like, democratic failure and incoherence? That's going to be my next solo episode. I'm going to try and put forward a theory that tries to map that kind of long and slightly inchoate rant and put forward a a positive account of how I think we should be be thinking about this. Um, and that'll be next time, but I'll stop it I'll stop it there. Um, and yeah, I don't mean to like always sound as if I'm like challenging the left. Like like I say, I sort of include myself as a slightly heretical perhaps, but a member of this tribe nonetheless. And like I say, like <sighs> The failures of this theory of change are in many ways the failures of a theory of change that I've signed on to. And although in one sense it's not surprising, it is a little jarring to just see, you know, again with the child tax credit, people sort of know, do they know? that, like, this is something that's on the table if we have Democrats in power and not if we have Republicans, and are still going to vote Republicans out of a general sense of frustration that COVID hasn't been cleaned up yet, or that Biden has been getting a load of negative news coverage, or that their perception of the overall economy is poor, even though their perception of their own financial status is very positive, and they think they're doing well. There's just this feeling that overall America isn't, which again, the media has to be a part of our account of all of this. Um, yeah. Christ, I need to just wrap this, don't I? Which is just to say that this is hard and it's depressing a lot of the time. And I feel it. And if people feel dispirited, I am not knocking that. Right? There's always this thing on the political left of, oh, just pick yourself up and win the next election and fuck off, right? Like, it is okay to, to feel like things suck sometimes and to feel disappointed in things. That's fine. That's valid. I feel that too. What I'm, what, what, what I'm pushing back on is don't go from that... I'm not saying don't feel that. Feel that. I feel it a lot of the time. But don't think that that feeling commits you to a political strategy of withholding votes as a mechanism for change. That strategy doesn't work. And that strategy, frankly, played a, not the, but a role in getting us to the point where we are now. I'm saying don't do that. But yeah, yeah, my, my analysis of, like where the American political system is at. Um, I see a lot of positives in what Biden has done and has tried to do, but my overall ar overarching analysis of the trend lines that we're on is not and has never been <laughs> hugely optimistic. So yeah, by all means, feel shitty about that. By all means, like, it's valid to feel shitty, you know? Um, 
And then, in terms of what we do, I think we're in the fight that we're in. We might not have wanted Biden as our quarterback, but he is the quarterback now. And honestly, another quarterback wouldn't would be wouldn't be that. It'd be somewhat different. It wouldn't be that different, right? This is the fight we're in, and we just have to win it. Like, and the consequences will be grave if we don't. And that's not fair. It's not a question of justice. It is unjust that we find ourselves with this being the fight and the stakes being what they are and the field being as slanted against us as it is. It is unjust. Nevertheless, that is... We have to confront the reality of our existential circumstance. Okay, thanks for listening.